and welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast. I'm your host and Flux co-founder, Corinne Mitchell. I've spent my career exploring technology's role and amplifying impact within our social sector, and more specifically, helping funders to learn to leverage technology and data to connect and better serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities. In this podcast series, my team and I will profile social sector leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry futurists to explore this fascinating intersection of funding, technology, and policy. We're here to analyze the most critical and formative topics and trends that shape philanthropy both today and tomorrow. We hope this series leaves you inspired to think and act through a more collective and visionary lens. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome President and CEO of Drive Agency, Jesse Tolkien. Hey, Jesse. There. Thanks for Hi. having me today. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's it's a great change for us because oftentimes we've been talking to a lot of folks on the philanthropic programmatic side, and I am loving that we get to dive into the world of policy with you and your, you know, your efforts with Drive Agency, which pun intended, drive expansive change in the world through transformative social impact. And I could not be more excited to have you on. I'd love to have you actually describe a bit more about yourself and the Drive Agency world. And by the way, congrats on that new role. Well, thank you so much. Yes, Drive Agency is a new force in the world, but the work is built off the last 20 years that I have spent as a campaigner and a movement builder. I like to call myself a disruptor of the right kind. Drive Agency, we like to say, is not an agency, but is in the business of driving agency in everybody from citizens to CEOs. I have you know, found over the course of my career that when we can unlock agency in individuals, in civic engagement, in advocacy, there is a world of possibility that's out there. And in particular, trying to help philanthropy understand the importance of what it means for everyday people and citizens to have agency in imagining and executing solutions to the world's biggest problems is at the beating heart of what Drive Agency is all about. After raising money and building movements on everything from climate change to women's rights to global health, I think Drive Agency is here to get in the weeds with decision makers in philanthropy to figure out how we can be more dynamic in funding more robust strategies for change in the world. I think it's so compelling too, because when we talk about, especially this next generation coming up, who has this incredible sense of I don't know, the collective maybe is the term of just being able to come and say, how do I start to think in a, in a larger way and make impact at a grassroots way and, and change the way that hearts and minds work? It is so interesting. I love that your your career actually started back then as a grassroots student. So in many ways, you're coming up through um, you know, the learnings you've had over time, implementing them in and then and then shaping the work of what you do today, which 20 years later is is absolutely revolutionary. So do you mind telling a little bit about your backstory? Because I think it is one of the most compelling parts that make you so effective and so interesting in this space in terms of your approach. Yes. In fact, it's one of my favorite things to kind of reflect on this unexpected, but really epic adventure (laughs) uh, of advocacy and of movement building. 
I feel incredibly fortunate that at a really young age, I was able to experience firsthand the power of what happens when people come together to use their voice and their political will and their power built together to make change. So really, as a student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is when I think I first learned and understood the title or the name of activist, I saw that there was this huge divide between young people's power as voters and how we were showing up in the political process, right? Like, we had historically low numbers of direct civic participation. And yet I was a part of, I am a part of one of the biggest, most diverse generations in American history. And on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I found all these ways where we could flex our power as tuition payers, where we could flex our power as voters, where we could flex our power as students in a big academic system and actually figure out the pathways to engaging students to be big enough in our numbers, big enough in our action, big enough in showing up at the voting booth itself to have real impact. In fact, as a 19-year-old, I ran for the city council and I got elected because I did something nobody had ever done before. I asked students to participate in a municipal election. And, and you know, over the course of the past 20 years, those lessons I learned very early on about the power of giving people an opportunity to engage in their own backyard, uh, engage in elections, engage in issues that matter most to them, has really formed my view that there is no shortcut to building political will, and there's no shortcut to building power, to making lasting change on issues. And I've spent 20 years trying to help philanthropy understand that those are the types of strategies that will pay off massive dividends for so many years to come. And it's because in some ways, you know, it's such an authentic way to, again, build hearts and minds. And I think we saw, I mean, even in the last election, not to get political on stuff, but with Georgia and the ability to sort of take things at that grassroots level and roll them in what do they have power to see you do and change. I think that's really cool. And and you brought that, obviously, bringing it into the philanthropic space, that context of where it can be effective and how we as an industry need to look at it is something I think people are just starting to dabble more with. And to be honest, are opening their eyes up to kind of what could be. And I think that's something that we're seeing more and more places where people are starting to look at policy approaches instead of just saying, look, I do grant making, but the policy stuff we have to stick in a side corner. They're actually starting to say, you know what, you can't do grant making without policy change. You need to be able to buffer the two. Otherwise it doesn't stick. It doesn't last. And to your point, it doesn't, it doesn't draw the masses forward. So I love that you're bringing it into the philanthropic space. And you more than anyone obviously knows that there is a very you know, specific part of campaigning and organizing all these things that need to kind of come together to make this happen. So you know, across all these engagements, can you share kind of a, a standout story where you're, you targeted policy change in the philanthropic space and kind of what are some of the types of things that you guys have been able to accomplish at Drive Agency? Absolutely. Well, I'll tell a story that predates Drive Agency and and continues in the Drive Agency moment. I am really proud to have been a part of the climate change movement and climate change sector for many, many years now. And right, just, just a couple of days ago, we had a release of the IPCC report, which was scary and terrifying and also a call to arms around the world. 
that we got to push harder than ever to enact strong policy change on climate. But an example of where philanthropy has such a powerful role to play here um, really, really starts about six and a half years ago. And I was really proud to work hand in hand with the IKEA Foundation. So it's the family foundation, the the, the charitable arm, um, not IKEA Corporation, IKEA yeah, actually, Foundation. You know, they're a client of Flux. So there you go. We have a nice little um, connection. There you go. There we and go. In fact, I have spent wonderful, long, beautiful <laughs> hours in flux filling out IKEA Foundation applications where these ideas I'm about to talk to came to life on the page. And IKEA Foundation saw prior to the Paris climate negotiations, right, we're almost six years ago now, that we were going to need kind of unprecedented leadership from the business sector, from governments around the world, if there was any chance that the world was going to come together in Paris to sign the historic agreement to put our global path to addressing climate change on the right trajectory. And what we proposed to IKEA Foundation is we are going to need to build a movement and we are going to need to create the conditions that allow decision makers in key countries around the world, that allow decision makers in businesses to have the support and the space to go further and do more than they've ever done ever before. And how do we do that? It's not just calling up heads of government and heads of business and saying, this is the moment. It's showing them that their citizens and that their customers are expressing that this is a mandate, right? Absolutely. And that means going above and beyond the base of supporters that have always cared about climate change. It meant going deep in India and Brazil and East Africa, across Europe, and identifying new constituencies. Could we get the faith community to speak out loud about the need for bold action on climate change? Could we reach senior citizens about the importance of leaving a planet healthy enough to be able to sustain a healthy and vibrant life for their grandchildren? Could we go out there and make the business case, right, that young consumers want to frequent the brands that are willing to take strong climate action? Well, for IKEA Foundation, for any philanthropy, building a movement like that, that can be scary business, so to speak. What do you mean? It's it's you're not telling me exactly what the outcome is going to be. You're going to go out. You're going to test hypotheses and messages about how to engage new audiences to be able to build the conditions for a huge political moment that's like nothing we've ever seen before. And we said, yeah, IKEA Foundation, that's what we want to do. We want to experiment. We want to form hypotheses. And then we want to share everything we've learned with absolutely everybody in the sector so that people can learn from what we did, so that we can show whether or not there's a correlation between new voices and new audiences and moving the dial on policy. Um, and we're thankful to IKEA Foundation for our willingness to invest in that, to invest in this model of, of a climate lab. Um, that enabled us, along with the incredible folks at Purpose, uh, my former company, and and really experts in in the work of of campaigning. Um, and what's so incredible is not only were we a small part of helping a historic agreement take place in Paris that has catapulted the world 
towards some of the most aggressive solutions to climate change we've ever seen in history. But that model of philanthropy being willing to invest in movement building, invest in reaching new audiences, and yes, invest in the scary business of experimentation has set a whole new standard of other philanthropies coming to the table and saying, you know what? We're not going to be able to get transformative change if we're not willing to push the limits, if we're not willing to experiment. And it's been fun to work with everybody from the Gates Foundation to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to others around the world to kind of replicate that model on other issues. And when you you talk about the replication and this idea, again, of taking something, and, and it's nice when there's those affiliations like the Climate Lab and you have structural ways to get into either regional affiliate groups or whatever it be. I think that's just such a powerful way. And to be honest, very grassroots, you know, in that sense of taking something that's hyper-focused, hyper-local, hyper-exciting and bringing a, a common language, a common structure for it. I think that's absolutely the way that I envision if I were to play out the next five years of philanthropy that I would hope we would meet that is to open groups and invite people in, but also keep groups that need to have sort of a closed structure to be able to share information and move forward. Anyway, all of this, though, this idea of, you know, put forward these structures and these changes kind of hinge on our ability to execute. And obviously, policy work, campaigning, fundraising, really anything, philanthropy hinges on two soft skills to do that, which is influencing and obviously telling a good story (laughs) that elicits a response and convinces people to take action. So, when you're thinking the, the sort of replication of, say, that IKEA model forward, how do you create these compelling events, this sense of urgency, or to be honest, that community sort of central collective mindset to help funders and philanthropists see themselves as stakeholders in activist work? I think it's a really excellent question. And I think a lot about the architecture of change. <laughs> and related to the architecture of change, I think about the architecture of movements, because I believe movements and public will are so important in ultimately affecting long-term change. And the truth is that movements are born out of moments. And moments are these things that happen day in and day out in people's lives. They are the events that are unfolding, their natural disasters, their pandemics, their economic conditions. And it's about being able to meet people in the moment they, they're at with the emotions they're feeling and giving them an opportunity to do something with that reaction, to do something with that passion or that fear. This is, this is an art form that requires a degree of speed and a degree of readiness that I hope it's okay to say is totally counter to the pace at which philanthropy tends to work. Um, I think that's completely (laughs) fair and correct, by the way. (laughs) So yeah, go ahead. I agree with you. (laughs) The world is is unfolding, especially today, in, in such rapid, rapid ways. And we're consuming information and we're, we're having reactions to things. And sometimes there are seconds or minutes or days or even weeks when we can capture the public's attention and channel that attention into something that looks like a mandate and support for change. And these models creating the ability to see a natural disaster happen in Europe, like European flooding or forest fires in California one day, and be able to work with grassroots partners to bring that issue to life in the form of social content within days that enables, you know, everyday Americans to say, I'm terrified by this. I I absolutely want to see 
my government and corporations take action so that we don't have to live in this state of fear. That's what that, you know, I would describe as riding these waves of what's happening in the world and translating that into action that enables us to give decision makers and policymakers the push they need to act. So how do you do that if you're a grant maker? It's like, I don't know, maybe I give out grants twice a year, right? That I, I can't give out money at the speed at which events are unfolding in the world. I think that's where we have to start looking at building an infrastructure, giving organizations and grassroots partners and stakeholders the resources with the flexibility right. that they're able to react to moments, that they're yeah. able to grab the surfboard and ride that wave that turns it into a real movement moment for change. And I think that's a really good point because it's actually twofold. It's that and it's also reforming our processes because if we're not able to react to the very things that we say we're supporting in philanthropy, and I speak of this as a grant maker or even technology solution, that ability to move quickly impedes our ability to help with everything, whether it's disaster relief, COVID, anything of that nature. But even more so, to your point, it could just be basic policies, things changing, and they need to immediately recalibrate. So it's a process discussion, too. And I think that there is a groundswell occurring right now on the foundation side to say, how can we start removing some of these, what we've created, you know, these barriers, if you will, to getting things done quicker. So it's a combination of that and making it more open and having general operating instead of, you know, isolating it down to restricted funds. So I'm absolutely with you on that, too. I, I agree 100%. And I know it can be a scary proposition as a grant maker to go to the board and say, we've given out these grants, and I'm, I'm going to exaggerate a bit, right? But we've given out these grants. And board, I cannot tell you precisely we, what we will get out on the other end of the grants, right? That, that just seems like a totally unplausible way to go. But we have to kind of reshape that thinking in order to then also reshape process, which is we're investing in the mosaic of actors and players that have access to the constituencies of individuals to be in discourse with, to be in conversation with, to mobilize in the right moments, to be able to seize the most effective opportunities for change, and to be in an open dialogue, not a like, you're not going to hear what happened with this grant until I submit a grant report, <laughs> you know, on the grant deadline that's listed in, right. arbitrarily in and with some rose colored glasses somewhere in the middle and all you, yes, absolutely. Right. But strange. instead to be in really active dialogue about what's happening, you know, I mean, I, I often talk to my friends about my WhatsApp conversations with, with donors and program officers <laughs> across, across the world because I want them to know when I see a moment and I want them to say, this is when we might jump. What do you think? Should we, should we go for it? You know, what we're seeing doing the social listening we're doing right now is that the release of the IPCC climate report on Monday oh, yeah. is causing a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. As it should. And what we want to do as it should, what we yeah. want to do is connect that fear and the anxiety yep. to the overwhelming number of solutions that are out there right now. Absolutely. We want to convert anxiety into will for policy and business solutions. This is how we're going to make that happen. And being in that dialogue with philanthropy is, is awesome because then philanthropy gets to come back and say, hey, I've got these six other grantees that I think will really benefit from participating in that activity. Could you, could you call them up and get them involved? And we say, absolutely. 
And that's, I think, interesting because that really does answer the point, which is when I was saying, you know, how do you create a compelling event? The point is that compelling events are already here, but it's the yes. idea about how do we create either a mechanism for them to take action, a, a visibility into the movements of foot, or even just helping them to align to like-minded people so that they can start thinking differently. So I think that's a very important thing that you pointed out. So thank you for that. Compelling events are all around us. <laughs> all around um, us every single day. <laughs> every day. So when we talk about the coordination then around these compelling events, I mean, obviously we have this amalgam of activists, nonprofits, corporate, private, millions of donors, all those good things coming in. And in that, you know, trying to collaborate with one another, you, I mean, you mentioned WhatsApp, it's super interesting. Like, what are the ways you look at this collaboration? Again, if you had a magic wand, how would you start looking at collaboration in a more real time responsive way? I think, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic moment that we're all living through is that our networks that exist out there are leaning into a whole set of tools and technologies that are making us better collaborators than we've ever been before. We might be more distributed, but I think we're actually, you know, putting heads together in, in smarter, more efficient, and more, more effective ways than ever before. Something that I love seeing happening right now, there's a big discussion in the United States right now about what does it mean to build back better? In fact, it's not just an American conversation, it's a global conversation. And what does the build back better conversation mean? It means in the aftermath of COVID, right? How are we building our care infrastructure, our economy, the life for workers? How are we investing in climate solutions and healthcare, et cetera, et cetera? And some of the really cool ways that I see networks collaborating is on Slack channels that might include 30 or 40 different nonprofit or grassroots advocacy organizations that are out there testing content and messages to see how are Americans in different parts of the country and world reacting to different messages about building back better. What resonates? Where is their hope? Where is their optimism? Where is their concern about spending too much money? I put a bunch of content and ads in the world last last week about what it means to invest in a clean energy economy so that we have clean air to breathe. And I, I did that in a bunch of places and I shared the content on Slack and I shared all the metrics of how it's working so that 30 or 40 other organizations around the country get to build off of that. What I think is really exciting about whether or not we're in WhatsApp groups or we're in Slack channels or, you know, we're doing old school conference calls or Zooms and actually sharing in real time how our strategies and activity is working is it's a leveraging of philanthropic dollars and investment, hopefully in a better way than we've ever seen before, right? So that in real time, every philanthropic dollar spent on a strategy can be shared with other organizations right. and that we're improving and we're pivoting to new strategies in real time. And to kind of eliminate this idea that it's about my organization performing better than another organization. I mean, Drive Agency is in the collaboration business, right? We're here to bring unlikely actors together to build more power and influence that could ever be built without that collaboration. Um, and I think philanthropy encouraging that is, mm -hmm. is awesome. And I also think that kind of the advocacy and campaigning sector is kind of showing by example, the power of collaboration on overdrive. I think the other thing that often times we look at 
foundations and the rate limiting step around some of their willingness to join. Part of it is, you know, the data doesn't match and there's, you know, no common, you know, structures in place. But the truth is you just have to want to do five data pieces to share data amongst, you know, 10 different funders. And you have, like you said, the ability to do cross funder analysis. Uh, you can start to engage grantees in a different way. So I think this sort of all or nothing thing is people have to sort of release because I do believe that's solving for, um, you know, perfection is not going to, it's not going to help anyone. But I think that the moving steps as we kind of get through, we are seeing a, a fair amount of, again, groundswell across funders and asking us as technologists say, how do we look at data lakes? How do we look at API structures, integrated models? How do we take the, the cross-section of information we have from our donors and connected to our grant making beyond just the typical ways of saying, here's the payment amount. How do we look at that through DEI? So I am hearing from my side of the equation that same interest in saying, what can we really do? And it's nice to be a thought partner in that discussion. And I think technology has a seat at the table to help enable these pieces. And then the policy part, I mean, that's where, you know, again, hearts and minds are coming to play. So it's nice that all of us have a, a footing right now to be able to move things forward alongside some of the more academic conversations that typically take place. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Tell me a little bit about where you typically, speaking of some of the rate determining steps or rate limiting steps as it be, you know, it, it does struggle. Philanthropy does struggle, struggle sometimes to pick up the pace. Why do you think sometimes we run into those challenges? And, and where do you think those, those ideas are perhaps faulted and can be course corrected? You know, this is something that I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and, and talking to individual donors and philanthropists with over time. Um, you know, I, I guess I should preface all of this by saying that I have been so fortunate in 20 years of work to, you know, engage with hundreds of millions of dollars of philanthropic resources that have contributed to transformative change in the world and would not have been possible without those dollars. So it's easy to complain and it's easy to say what's wrong. And, you know, we're so grateful for the resources that are out there. The irony for me is that if you think about where the source of wealth came from, for most of our philanthropies and foundations to be able to exist, it came through success of all different kinds of enterprise and business. Right. And this is interesting because there is no successful business person in the world that will tell you the way they successfully built their business was by making sure that every single thing they tried worked and was successful, right? Businesses are, are built through so much trial and error through failure, followed by success, followed by a right. lot of failure. And I then like to think success. of those as character building right? moments. <laughs> right. Those are intense character building moments. Yes. And so it's interesting to try to understand and follow the through line of when you take you know, dollars that were achieved in successful business practice, where there had to be risk and experimentation and failure. And now those dollars are parked inside of philanthropy. And there's kind of a new mentality that is set in, which is every dollar that gets spent through that philanthropy, we have to show it created impact in the world. We have to be successful. These dollars are so precious. Right. That's very true. But just like in business, the solutions to these complex problems we're trying to address in the world, it's never going to be a sure bet, right? Yeah, and it's always going to be a complex answer that we need to hit on from many different levels. So you have to be able to try it. Yeah, it's always going to be a complex answer and it's going to require so much pivoting along mm -hmm. the way. And so, 
you know, I, I think the slowness comes from a desire to spend those dollars as effectively as possible to take the best bets to hope for the like largest chance of success mm-hmm. humanly possible. And those are all wonderful characteristics. But I actually think there is a much bigger risk in moving slow in moving moment and, and missing moments than there is in moving fast, failing, but being able to learn from those mistakes and pivot in our strategies to be able to advance solutions to these complex problems. And You know, I was afforded over the course of this past year to do a lot of work responding to this completely surreal moment of COVID and misinformation in the world. And we have so benefited from the philanthropies who said, you know, go experiment, test. Let's see what what people react to. Let's see how we can bring communities together. Let's see how we can forge new partnerships because it's only in the doing that the learnings come to life. It's interesting because I think I would actually, again, I would agree with you for the third time on this, but (laughs) the idea of risk aversion is I think the hardest thing that gets in people's way. And I've actually was having this discussion this morning with a partner at a a complementary technology platform. We were talking about how with VCs, for example, they're investing or or private equity guys, they come in and invest and um, they'll take the big bets. They'll take the risk. If basically the nonprofit or foundation space rather were to actually be investing, it would be like they would invest in like Microsoft, which is for sure great, but you're never going to get like, you know, this sort of incredible impact and it has to be a balance of big and small. And I think oftentimes um, it is easy for, you know, our space to kind of rely on what they know and relationships are absolutely critical, but there are some things about big impact makers that in the same way that a startup would come in that have innovative ways of approaching and tackling issues that need to be brought forward and, and having a space to your point to explore that get closer to some of those trends and, and potentially large impact players that may be small in the space. You know, it's something I really hope that we as a technology platform, especially at Flux, can start to bring light to. And my hope is as, as we start to share data through whatever it is, whether it's grantee collectives, funder collectives, that those sort of, um, you know, those those nuggets come into a place where they are, you know, shiny and seen and can be picked up and broadened. So I'm actually really excited about where technology can assist with some of this to be able to show the impact data and then broadcast that through based on funder and collective, you know, um, agreement that this is something really compelling. So yeah, I'm hoping to have a an amplification role for sure in technology. I, I think the amplification role of technology and platforms like Flux and others can play such a critical role is is so essential. Something that I I talk a lot about is the fact that philanthropy is also limited by the partners it knows and the partners it can see, right? This is right. to the point that you were just making. There are, there are the established players who know how to get access to philanthropy, who have the capacity Absolutely. to fill out a Flux application. I know, right? Uh, flux um, before and are like, yeah, 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 I've got this. <laughs> you know, who, who know how to play the game of philanthropy. And yet those visible actors are one relatively small slice of the ecosystem of players that are required to deliver on the impact and change that we want to see in the world. And, you know, I think there are, you know, 10 or 15 layers deeper of partners and adjacent issue partners and different kinds of organizations we wouldn't think as the typical grantee that when brought in, allow kind of unusual new solutions to exist. And so, you know, in the event that a, that a philanthropy stumbles across, finds the way to work with new partners, how do we take that work 
and make it visible to the rest of the philanthropic network out there, right? So that we we are growing and investing in building a, a much bigger pool of applicants and participants for the change making that we're trying to affect in the world. And there's no question that that technology platforms and technology tools have an absolutely critical role to play in that. I was actually talking with one of our funders about this, and and they had mentioned that exact thing where their foundation has a specific risk threshold that's a lot lower than um, perhaps others. And what what he would do is simply get the information and then forward it over to another foundation, say, hey, I love these guys. My board will never approve this. So you guys need to fund them because they are spectacular. And, And that's something I look at and say, that's that's something we can do. Like those are just some short term things that's like, wow, like that would be so compelling. And then how do you track those interactions um, and it becomes this interesting, almost graph database, if you will, of how things connect through. So I would love to see technology step into that. So I love that you're supportive of that. And I'm going to come bug you about it once I get my brain together on uh, on this with the product. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So let's kind of fast forward here. What does this look like, you know, going forward? What do we have this kind of future of philanthropy influence policy? What does this look like for you? Um, what's your vision for how we respond to the moment that we're in today and will be in for the foreseeable future, but for where we need to be headed to tomorrow? That is a really fun question. You know, I think there are so many lessons for us to take from these last uh, 18 months that are unlike any 18 months any of us have ever lived through before. Um, you know, some of those lessons are of the resilience <laughs> and dynamism of the power of advocacy and the power of campaigners to be able to continue to move forward during really difficult conditions. And also, I think, you know, we should give props to the foundations and philanthropies out there who were willing to pivot and say, sometimes we've got to ditch our tried and true strategic established plans, and we've got to make more dollars available quicker, right? Because the moments are unfolding in front of us. I think my fear is that these new ways of working, you know, deeper and better collaboration amongst advocacy partners and funders, perhaps a little bit increased risk appetite from funders to be willing to say, we got to get money to the front lines on these biggest issues as quickly as possible. I don't want any of that to go away. (laughs) I think the, the ability to experiment more, the willingness to put more control and more experimental power in the hands of advocacy actors that we've seen during the pandemic is essential. And if anything, we should turn that up. We should put that in overdrive as we look ahead. I also think that while philanthropy will forever be organized, I know in various topic areas and issue areas, I hope that this year has taught us just how intersectional so many different issues are, right? that we can't actually have a conversation on building a more just and equitable world. We can't have a conversation about including more diversity, equity, and inclusion in our organizations and combating climate change and living in a healthier society. We can't have those conversations in isolation with one another. So I'm really looking forward to program officers within philanthropies, organizations across issues and across disciplines, figuring out where they can come together in collaboration to kind of form those unlikely partnerships for change. So let's end this podcast on a rapid fire note. I'm going to run through a series of short, quick questions, and I encourage you to respond with the very first thing that comes to your mind. Does that sound good? That sounds awesome. All right, ready? 
Living or deceased, name a person in history who you would like to sit down and have a meal with. Ooh, that's a good one. I would have to say Harriet Tubman. Ooh, I like that one. That's a great one. All right. What do you think are the most important trending topics being discussed in philanthropy today? Top one or two. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, girl. And addressing the climate crisis and coming out on the other end with a clean and just energy future. I squeezed in a few extra words. I love that. No, I like the aspirational part. That's great. Uh, If you could snap your fingers and instantly fix one of the world's most pervasive problems, which one would it be and why? Disinformation. (laughs) If we could just get real information to our beautiful fellow citizens of the world, we'd be able to make much better solutions and decisions. Right. Jesse, thank you absolutely so much for joining the podcast today and sharing more about yourself, your work. I absolutely enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. thought it was very inspirational. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been such a great opportunity to be in conversation. And thanks for all you're doing to ask these important questions about philanthropy and technology. Listeners, you guys can learn more about Drive Agency at driveagency.com, which will be linked in the episode description. You can listen and download our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at flux.io. That's F-L-U-X-X dot I-O.